Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we'll talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are going to be addressing an ethical dilemma that has interested Christians since the earliest of times, and that is the ethics of war. Now, as an introductory note, we're not assuming or planning a war, but wars do occur in a broken world, and we need to have a biblical basis to respond properly. So, Aaron, the significance of this ethical question, as we know, is huge, but why? Well, ethics deals in the realm of morality. So, when we talk about the Christian faith, we often use the illustration of a three-legged stool. Theology deals with the content or the substance of our faith. Ethics deals with the practicalities, the moral living of our faith. And, of course, apologetics is the defense of our faith. But they also sort of all come together and hinge off of one another, if you will. In other words, what we think affects how we act. The way we think and act affects how we present or defend our faith in the public realm. This is an ethical question, but it has implications for all of life. It literally affects lives. The way you answer this question affects lives. It could result in the taking of life, or it could result in the preservation of life. It affects countries. It affects government decisions. It affects our attitudes about forgiveness. It affects our attitudes about justice, and it affects our attitudes about corporate responsibility. We do, after all, live out our lives in nation states, in societies, and we need to affirm or disaffirm the decisions that are presented to us as citizens. And if war were to break out and we were called to war or we're called to discuss the proper response that our country might have to another country at war and whether we should aid them or steer clear, it's good for us to be thinking through these issues. They do have profound implications for life. Fortunately, we don't deal with them every day, but there will be wars and rumors of wars to the end and it's good for us to think through them even in a period of peace, relative peace, so we can know how to respond when the challenges are presented to us. Yeah. Now, we're obviously not the first generation to think about this. So how have historic Christians addressed this issue? Well, obviously, there's been a variety of opinions on the question of, is it right to go to war and under what circumstances since the beginning of the church? The idea of War has occupied the minds of Christians for centuries because they've been confronted with it. But I would say in, in broad sweeps, in the broadest of sweeps, church historians would suggest that er, the earliest Christians tended towards a pacifist response. During the period of the medieval church, there were obviously defensive wars that were fought to, to, to defend territory against invading enemies. And, and there were also offensive wars that were waged, like in the time of the, the Crusades. In the modern church, there's differences of opinion. There's a variety of opinions as to the ethical implications of war. But I would say the dominant, the dominant view among most Christians today would be some form of a just war theory, that war can be fought as a last resort. It's not something we look forward to. It's not something we advocate for. Now, the question, as we think about various responses 
throughout history. So if if it's true, and it's probably a bit of an overstatement, that the earliest of Christians tended towards passivism, medieval Christians tended towards more of a defensive, offensive view, and the modern church tends towards a just war view, the question is, are these views or were these views prevalent because of political realities, cultural realities, or theological realities, or both? In other words, were these, were these responses by Christians based on a careful study of Scripture, or were they more of a response to the political circumstances that they found themselves in? For instance, in the early church, especially for the first three centuries or so, Christians weren't typically in positions of political office, and they were living certainly in Israel, for example, in a vassal state, which was under the authority of Rome. So they were sort of subject to whatever Rome decided. So that, that may explain why they tended to lean towards a pastivist response. But we do, we do have to think through these issues. It's important for us to, to arrive at some conclusions because if we were ever confronted with a call to arms in our own nation, there's a lot of details to think through that we may not have time to think through if we haven't thought through them in advance. Mm -hmm. people, people could just ignore it. So there, there are some that would probably lean in that direction. I'm just going to ignore it. I don't want to talk about it would be their mindset. Others would criticize every one of the views but not present a realistic alternative. They may say, I don't, I don't accept any of these views. Okay, well, what, what alternative would you suggest? I don't have one. And then others may just wash their hands of it. It's not for me to decide, but what if you're conscripted? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or what if your nation right. is involved in a war and you're asked by your people whether it's right or wrong to participate? Or then there's a patriotic response those that might just say this is solely a, a political question and it's really not a biblical question. So we have a variety of responses, and, and I just want to help people think through these these issues. And fortunately, there there are there are things that we all agree on, which is to celebrate. For example, I don't I don't know of any Christian that thinks it's it's a wonderful thing to proactively go out and take life. We all would agree as Christians in all camps, in the Roman Church, the Protestant Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the various denominations and uh, affiliations that would associate with those broad categories, that war is a horrible thing, and we should pray for peace on earth as much as possible. That's a, something that all Christians, I would hope, would agree on. We also all would acknowledge that war is part of a fallen world and will remain so to the end. It's not part of the eschatological reality, fortunately, but war is part and parcel of a broken world that is yet to be fully, that is yet to fully submit itself to the Lordship of Christ. We would all agree that the stakes are very high, and so an informed decision on these matters is, I think, pretty important. I think we would all agree that the holy wars of Israel under the Old Covenant should inform our notions of war, but they're not necessarily directly transferable mm -hmm. due to the 
different natures of the covenant, the different natures of how God was was working. I think we would all agree there's no silver bullet proof text that once and for all you know, answers the question. There's a lot of different scriptures to consult when it comes to examining how Jesus responded to violence, how Jesus spoke of swords, how the early church fathers spoke of these matters. And I think we would all also agree, this is the final point, that in contexts where people are conscripted to go to war, the question almost becomes kind of moot because there have been many situations throughout history where a person might have their own viewpoint, but they're forced to live in contradiction to their own viewpoint because they're forced to go to war. So those are, those are, um, I guess what I'm saying there is it's one thing to have an ethical view and it's another thing to have the opportunity to live it out. Mm-hmm. But those are things that Christians, I think, across the board would pretty much agree with, but then there's also some very different viewpoints as to the appropriateness of Christians engaging in physical combat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and throughout history, it seems like four dominant perspectives or positions on the ethics of war have taken shape. And so what we're going to do is we're going to explain them and evaluate them. So we're going to start with the non-resistance view. Sure. Yeah, so two of them are more on the we really shouldn't for the most part be involved in war. And then two of them are of the opposite opinion that it's okay for us to be in war under certain circumstances. But let's just, let's just start off with what's historically been called the, the non-resistance view. So in a nutshell, the non-resistance view would teach that Christians should participate in a proper war, a just war, a justifiable war, you could say, but only in the role of a non-combatant. So as they look at scripture, the the argumentation that would be used to support this view would would be based upon a, a realization, and it's a proper realization that violence is a result of sin in the world. So it's, it's not good. Violence is a result of sin in the world. It's tied to the fall of humanity, that various international organizations have been formed to try to stem the tide of total destruction. Not only do we have the world divided up into nation states because of Babel, which which is protective, because it's there's never really been a time when the entire globe has been at war. I know we call it World War One or World War Two, but it still wasn't every nation. Like every nation didn't participate mm-hmm. in in those those battles or those global conflicts. So they would say, look, there's international organizations that have been formed to stem the tide of total destruction. We should continue to encourage the formation of such organizations, and we should speak peace into the world. They would appeal to passages like Matthew 5, 38 to 48, where our Lord talks about not resisting evil. Uh, They would appeal to passages like Romans 12, where we're called not to be conformed to the patterns of the world. They would appeal to passages like John 17, especially verses 15 through 19, where we're reminded that we're not of this world, and that includes the use of violence and godless means to try to win conflicts. They would um, certainly remind and acknowledge that the church and the state are not one and the same, that it's not the church's prerogative to declare war or go to war, but they would also acknowledge that sometimes states do that. 
um, heavy emphasis on citizenship. Uh, they would appeal to passages like Colossians 1.13 that were, were part of the kingdom of Christ or Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven or Hebrews 11 that were pilgrims and strangers. And then they would look, look to Christ and say, you know, Christ set a pattern. He did not resist evil with armies. In John 18, he had the opportunity to, to, to do so, but he did not uh, call upon the armies of the world to rescue him or rescue others, even though he had the divine prerogative to do that. And because we're called in Scripture to walk as Christ did, in the non-resistance view, there's a heavy emphasis on what you could call the, the ethical stance of Christ, which gravitates towards peace and forgiveness and that if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be like Christ, then we should gravitate toward the, the example of Christ. And they would also argue that if we really want to change the world, it's through the proclamation of the gospel. Hmm. So, you know, Romans 1 teaches that. 2 Corinthians 10, the gospel is the power of God to change lives, not the sword. Historically, there would be a an acknowledgement that the church in the past has used weapons at times, even to expand her mission and to her shame. There was a point in history, especially during the medieval era or the time of the Crusades, when the church felt that in order to expand territory or in order to regain territory lost, that they wanted to be sort of the sharp tip of the spear. This is why we call them holy wars. And I think most modern Christians would say that was a bad idea. But the non-resistance camp would point to that, point to the history of Christians engaged in in battles and say it just it just didn't didn't go well. So those would be basically the, the the argument would be that the ethic of love, which Jesus Christ promotes, trumps the ethic of retaliation for every believing individual. But where a non-resistance view differs from a pastivist view is that the non-resistant non-resistant war theory differentiates between personal responsibility and co corporate or national responsibility. So while the individual should not engage in physical conflict, they would acknowledge that the state can, at times should, and maybe more benignly does participate in global conflicts. And when we are citizens of a particular country and we're called to participate, there would be a comfort level with a Christian participating in a just war as a non-combatant. So you could sign up, you could uh, willingly, um, well, you could be conscripted and not willingly resist that. And the reason the reason that, that they would they would use for that is obviously they'd point to Romans 13, that the state's been endowed with the, the sword. The sword is not a big butter knife. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not to make food with the sword. There is not to knight you like you might at a knighting ceremony. The sword is a symbol of justice. It's a symbol of rewarding the righteous and punishing the, the evildoer. So in this ethical paradigm, they would see that political powers are ordained by God. They are God's deacons, as Romans 13 teaches, and they are to be followed. So the kingdoms of Christ and the kingdoms of wor the world would operate on 
different levels. There's a bit of a two kingdoms theology that's necessary in order to buttress this view of Christians involved in war. So if a entire nation declares war or seeks to defend itself from an invading army, you could go in and you could serve, let's say, as a nurse or an orderly or a medic or a stretcher bearer or something like that. Others may scoff at you or, or laugh at you or accuse you of being cowardly. But that's basically the non-resistance view. There's, there's a movie that came out, uh, I think it's called Hacksaw Ridge. Mm-hmm. I think that's the movie where a young man goes to war and it's based on a true story, uh, and he, but he he has a non-resistance view. So he basically spends the, the, this dramatic during this dramatic battle scene. He spends his time uh, lowering wounded soldiers over a cliff by a rope in order to save their lives. But he refuses during the whole battle to ever pick up um, a gun mm-hmm. and to shoot back. That would be the the basic gist of of the non-resistance view when Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 10, I have come to bring peace, not a sword. Uh, you know, they, they would sort of appeal to that. There should be a, an emphasis on peace. So Christians can help governments fight wars, but only in positions of non-resistance. And what the, the idea there is that by doing so, they both fulfill the command to be loving, but also the command to obey the government. So I'm not saying I agree with all that, but I'm just trying to summarize yeah. that basic viewpoint. Yeah. Okay. So a similar one uh, is, and we've referenced pacifism. It's a second view that's a bit different though than non-resistance. Yeah. So can you explain that one to us and then we'll evaluate them both? Right. So, so in a nutshell... A lot of those arguments, the earlier arguments that were used by the non-resistance advocates would would be parallel in the, in the pacifist view. But where the pacifist would differ is they would just say, Christians should never participate in war. We're always called to make peace. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. So they wouldn't have a they wouldn't have a a comfortable divide between personal responsibilities and corporate responsibilities. They would agree with the non-resistance interpretation of scripture, except they would feel uncomfortable differentiating between individual and national ethics. Hmm. So the, indi- the the ethical stance of an individual should be the same as that for the nation state. Under this view, there wouldn't be a, an affirmation of sphere sovereignty, for example, at least for most advocates of pacifism, that this that the state, Romans 13, is God's deacon to bear the sword. I guess they would see that as just a very, very, very symbolic of justice, uh, retaining justice. But I, I, I'm not sure if I were to ask someone who is a strong advocate for pacifism, well, well what is the role of the government then in terms of maintaining public justice. I'm not sure that I would get a very good answer, but they don't necessarily concern themselves with that either. I think the focus would be on the ethics of Christ being lived out by a Christian. So in Matthew 26, Jesus told his followers to sheath the sword. Mm-hmm. In uh, Matthew chapter five, Jesus 
told his followers to permit personal attack, turn the other cheek, carry the luggage the extra mile. In John 18, we're told that we're in a different kingdom than the world. So the view would be that theologically God is all about building a heavenly kingdom, which is clearly about peace. So why wouldn't we be starting to live out those kingdom values and virtues in the here and now? Christologically, Jesus brings to light the complete ethic of God as our pattern for life by advocating for peace, by advocating for forgiveness, by advocating for turning the other cheek. They would also argue that hermeneutically, the unfolding of God's revelation of himself through scripture moves in their view toward pacifism from disorder to order, from disorientation to reorientation, from hatred to peace, that Christ is our peace, that he is love, that he is the full manifestation of God's love on earth. And that politically, God is no longer working through a nation like Israel so that Israel does not provide us with a New Testament ethic. Because everybody sees that Israel went to war against its neighbors as God's people, as God's covenantal people. But the argument from the pacifist would be that that God is no longer working through a, a nation state per se. And so the, the, the wars, the holy wars of Israel are irrelevant. Also, when we look to the future, regardless of your millennial position, that the, the, the ultimate eschatological reality is, is to move us toward uh, some form of millennial or, or heavenly peace, that that's the I, idea. So then why would we not start to move in that direction now by living out as much as possible a peaceful position mm-hmm. when we are faced with an aggressor that's that's trying to attack our nation. The pacifist is not necessarily opposed to Christians engaging in government or politics, so long as it never interferes on any level with 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 kingdom service. So that our primary responsibility should be our responsibility to God, not our our rights or responsibilities as as a citizen. I would say too, Chris, one of the big arguments that I've heard from proponents of pacifist position is that it if if you go and you you kill people on a battlefield it it robs people of the privilege of potentially knowing Christ mm-hmm. which by the way uh presupposes more of an arminian view of how god works in the salvation process but that aside one of the challenges of that viewpoint is if you say, okay, we're not going to go to war because we don't want to kill our enemies because we're robbing them of the potential of coming to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, what if you're looking out at an advancing army and as you're looking at them, they're killing other people that do not yet know Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, the peaceful inhabitants of a town? So I'm not sure that's a great argument, but that would be one that would be presented. Pacifists would say we need to avoid uh, war at, all costs, and if we were more proactive at avoiding it, the view would be that we can reduce it. Hmm. And it is therefore a clear witness to peace as a long-term solution to war to exercise peace in the here and now. Now, kind of a couple couple objections in addition to the one that I've already given is revolves around the Matthew 5 passage, Matthew 5, 39, where Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. It's it's interesting 
that a slap on the cheek there is considered a violent act. I mean, I know in a certain level it is a low-level violent act, but it's stacked against the idea of carrying another person's luggage. So by under Roman law, a Jewish citizen could be asked to carry the luggage of a Roman soldier one mile. And the idea there is if you suffer that inconvenience, that degradation, why not why not carry it too? Just kind of posture a certain peace with your circumstances. So we have slap on the face. And if you kind of study that passage, many have suggested that what it's actually saying is it's more of a it's more of an offense. They're slapping you with their potty hand rather than an actual act of violence. Hmm. That passage, I think, I think I'm fairly certain is really not about our response to violence. It's it's, it's kind of irrelevant to this discussion. Hmm. That's about how we respond to personal offenses Mm -hmm. as God's people. And when we're talking about personal offenses, uh, and then we're talking about war, those fall into two different categories. So I'm not sure it's a good proof text to go to Matthew chapter 5, which encourages us to suffer offenses for the cause of Christ and somehow use that to build a case for our response to national uh, conflicts. And finally, I would say that if if we use the argument that 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 pragmatic argument that mm-hmm. by by killing other people who are in the process of killing other people that we're robbing them of the opportunity to know Christ or somehow we're we're violating the commandment not to murder which is not true by the way because that commandment relates to premeditated murder of an individual and not killing in war there's a different mm-hmm. hebrew word for that mm-hmm. but if we use that argument it the, the big the big question mark is then how do you how do you justify passively observing an aggressor killing innocent men women boys and girls how do you justify that cuz it does seem like there's a bit of uh complicity in that and it does seem that on a certain level you would bear some responsibility for not otherwise defending those mm-hmm. folks from from aggression here's an interesting illustration i, I was asked recently about um, divorce and it, obviously we're, we're pro-marriage but God and, and God hates divorce. There's no question about that. And as much as possible, we should always work towards reconciliation. But God does permit divorce in cases of sexual immorality, for example. And, and one might think that's contradictory. Like by permitting divorce, aren't you in a certain way diminishing marriage? Well, I would say no, the opposite is actually true. By permitting divorce in cases in the case where someone has violated their marital covenant and basically spat on their marriage, what you're actually doing is long-term defending the sacred and solemn nature of marriage. If you don't give uh, a person an out to divorce their spouse when their spouse has messed around with other people and had sex with other people, you're actually in a certain way giving permission for the the guilty party to continue to do that without consequence. So 
This is a theology of accommodation, we would call it, whereby God permits divorce to actually maintain the sanctity of marriage. That doesn't mean that every divorce is a legitimate divorce, but in that situation, it would be a a legitimate divorce, whereby a person is held accountable to the sacred nature of marriage by, by being told, look, if you commit an adulterous act against another person, that act is is so egregious to God that your spouse, your covenant is actually broken. Your your marriage vows have been broken, and divorce is therefore um, permissible. So it's in the same. This isn't a podcast about divorce and remarriage, but I wanted to use that as an illustration to show that sometimes God, it seems to me, accommodates the realities of sin in our world, not by accommodating the sin, but by guarding the sacredness of marriage, or in this case, by guarding the sacredness of life by permitting us to minimally stop those that are in the business of taking other people's lives. And that's a pro-life position. Mm -hmm. You could say it this way. Sometimes you have to take life in order to retain life. Sometimes you have to kill in order to truly be pro-life if the person that you're killing is going about killing a whole lot of of innocent people. Um, It's it's emotionally difficult to maybe hear that, Mm -hmm. but I, I think it's accurate and I think it's reflective of scripture. Yeah. Do you think there's an objection as well in those that would point to Jesus and say, well, Jesus was a pacifist. He, he was calm where that's a, a narrow view of who Jesus is like Jesus. Certainly the first time he came, he's the suffering servant, but he's also the conquering King. Do you think there's something? Yeah. So this is a good point because if you just look at the Jesus of the gospels, as he is confronting, rebuking, healing, suffering, dying, being resurrected, you could come away with a view that Jesus was a pacifist. But if you look at the Jesus of the whole of the scriptures, the Jesus of the whole of scriptures is advocating for peace and love and forgiveness. And he's also coming on a white horse with a sword to destroy his enemy. So in certain situations, Jesus chooses an ethic of what we might call passivism or Mm non-resistance. But in other cases, he comes as our conquering king. So it's it's unfair to reduce G, your view of Jesus down to the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You also have to look at the Jesus of Revelation. Uh, and we we have a, a, a broad view of Christ that he, he is both, and obviously in perfect balance, which we'll never fully attain, but he's, he's both loving and kind and forgiving and the God of the second chance. And he's not afraid to judge evil and crack the whip, even in the temple. Mm-hmm. and express righteous anger and ultimately conquer his enemies. If you believe in hell and the lake of fire, you don't believe in a passive God. You believe in a God who will ultimately judge evil. And one could argue then as we bear the image of God into creation that somehow we need to find the right context and the right balance to express both of those divine, uh, both, both the attributes that God displays there in our own manifestation of his presence as his body on earth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's deal deal with uh, just war theory. And can you explain what that, what people that hold to that believe? 
Yeah, probably this is probably the dominant view, uh, but in a nutshell, Christians may participate, are permitted to participate in wars of defense, or we could say wars that are just. Before I give some objections to that view, let me kind of explain it a little bit. So in Matthew 26, Jesus asked his disciples to sheath the sword, which is true, which is one of those verses that the pacifists would point to. But he didn't call them to throw it away. In fact, he asked his disciples to carry a sword to defend themselves in the Gospels, not to butter their bread, not to open their mail, not to knight other disciples, but again, to defend themselves. In uh, Matthew 5, as I've already mentioned, Jesus is teaching about how we we, we do need to permit a measure of personal ridicule, but that's that's not in the same camp or category as letting other people kill you or kill others. Throughout scriptures, both in the Old and New Testaments, I could point the, the listener to Deuteronomy 24 or Psalm 82 or James 1. Uh, to permit w- murderous war is to violate the basic call in Scripture to stand for justice against the vulnerable. The just war theorist essentially serves as an intervening force, an intervening force to stop, to put up a barrier between those that are unjustly taking life and those that are innocent. And when we say innocent, we're not getting into the theology of total depravity. We're talking about innocent of of uh, you know having their their lives taken by an invading force, mm-hmm. so there's generally seven principles or limits or boundaries that just war theorists would require in order for a war to be declared to be just, and and you can't miss any of these steps, mm-hmm. but they would include a just cause, a just intention. War is a last resort, a formal declaration of intent so that the aggressor has the opportunity to back off before you wage an attack against them. A limited objective. In other words, you don't say, hey, we're, we're going to step out. We're going to defend our territory from an invading force. While we're at it, we're going to chop in our boats, cross the ocean and take their land and slaughter their people because they deserve it. So there has to be a... a a, a limited objective. There has to be a proportionate means involved. In other words, you don't take more life than necessary. You take enough life to stop the aggressing army from advancing, for example. But you don't then push them into the sea and again, go slaughter all their people and just keep pushing forward, forward, forward. And uh, there needs to be immunity for the, the innocent bystanders. So you need to ensure as best as you can that by defending your territory from an evading army or defending another nation from genocide, that uh, you're protecting as much as you can innocent bystanders. And the, the theological the theological basis for that is a view of sphere sovereignty, that the state, not the individual, so the ch- an individual can't declare war, mm-hmm. a church can't declare war, a husband can't declare war, but that the state, as part of its quote-unquote job description, does bear the sword. It does bear the sword of justice, and that also involves, at times, uh, the, the call to physically defend 
a, a nation or their people from from attack. So in the scriptures where Jesus is um, you know speaking about not not bearing the sword or calling people to peace, they a just war theorist would say those are those are ethical principles that are applicable to an individual, but they don't relate to national entities. They don't they don't relate to countries. That's a different sphere. Now it's important to understand that just war theorists are not warmongers. They're not they're not suggesting that war is a good thing. It's unquestionably evil. But if you grade out your absolutes in in a graded absolutist scheme of Christian ethics, you would say sometimes you're faced with two bad choices. You need to pick the lesser of two evils, so mm-hmm. to speak. And the lesser of two evils in this case would be defend the innocent by potentially killing the aggressor rather than allowing the aggressor to kill the innocent, which would be a greater evil to participate in. So war is unquestionably evil, but the question is not should we participate, but how how can we not participate given the injustices that exist in a broken world? How can we not? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of something that's thrown in front of us. And at times, different generations are going to be presented with no other option than to go to war. Now, another point would be that that war, if you think about it, war is no different on a large scale than punishing a criminal is on a smaller scale. So if if one of the objections to to both, to, to pacifism, pacifism in particular is like, do you believe in jails? Do you believe in people being pulled over and fined? Do you believe in people being punished in any way? Do you, do you spank your kids? Do you, do you exclude your children from having dessert? Like, do you believe in any sort of verbal or coercive force up upon bad behavior? And if you do on a small scale, you amplify that up to a large scale, Shouldn't there be some consistency there? So to be consistent, one might argue that a pacifist might might need to allow criminals to go unpunished if there's any chance that death may occur in apprehending or punishing them. What if a guy's are robbing a bank and the police cruisers pull up and they run at the back door and they're chasing them through the streets? Do you just say, yeah, we don't we don't chase criminals because someone might get run over or you know, maybe they'll roll their car and get hurt and killed. And they won't have an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to be kind in saying this, but the pacifist view, in my mind, is is a little bit naive. It's a little bit naive because it doesn't seem to be an, an ethical system that's grounded in real life. Like, Do you understand that this is a broken world? Do you understand that there are threats and dangers and bad people that need to be stopped? at times because they will accentuate evil and bring greater evil and greater death and greater destruction upon the world if if they are not stopped. So the, the issue then is, is less about determining uh, whether war is something we should or shouldn't do based upon the Old Testament or New Testament, mm-hmm. but more of an issue of graded absolutes. And based on biblical law, and common sense, we know there's times when people have taken up arms against aggressors. We, we do have the holy wars, the Old Testament at our disposal. Um, 
But there's also this idea of common sense. Like, do you realize what you're actually saying? If every Christian on the planet and every person with a Christianized worldview suddenly went pacifist, well, you're either then saying to non-Christians, well, you do all the fighting for us, mm -hmm. or you could have the rise of evil on a scale that you've never seen before in human history where you know, that would make the Holocaust look like a drop in the bucket because there are some very, very evil people out there and they, they're going to think twice before invading a country that's going to defend itself than if they were to discover that you know, there's, there's someone standing behind the boundaries with, with a gun that's going to stop them. It's kind of like your, your house, right? Would you put a sign in your front lawn that says, we don't lock our house, come on in, I got gold bricks stacked on my couch, you're welcome to them? Of course you wouldn't do that. Um, but if someone tried to try, if you, if you were concerned that somebody might think about breaking into your house, you do things like you put locks in the door, you might put no trespassing signs up, you might get a dog, you might put a fence up, you might try to protect yourself. And those things all exist as deterrents. That's all they are. People can hop fences, they can shoot your dog, they can boot your door in. But these things all serve as minor deterrents to make it more difficult. And it's more difficult for evil people to take life if they know there's good people that are going to respond to that. So this is really important. Just war theory does not justify war. Okay, Just war theory does not justify war. But just war theory acknowledges war. It acknowledges the reality of war. And it then permits private individuals to join the state, which is tasked with bearing the sword to defend itself against uh, an invader. Now, here, here is probably the major objection, Chris, to just, just war theory. Yep. How do we know it's just? Exactly. And that is the more difficult question because, especially in a corrupt world where you might have a, a president or a prime minister or a cabinet telling you, oh, we need to invade this country for reason X, Y, Z, you think to yourself, but, but is it true? Am I getting... Am I being told it's to protect life, but in reality, it's for some sort of political gain? Mm -hmm. So that that is a very real concern. But he, hey, if you at least arrive at the viewpoint that all things being equal, if you knew a conflict was actually about justice, for example, World War II seemed to be pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. Hitler's invading Europe. He's conquering country after country after country. He's rounding up people he doesn't like. He's gassing them in gas chambers. That's a pretty cut and dry, just war. And if you at least know that you're permitted to fight in a war like that, then um, really it's just more of an issue of, you know, is the war right or wrong? But I, I understand that in the current environment, use the Iraq war, for example, there was a lot of question marks and there still is about was the reason for going to war everything that was sort of made out to be, or were there maybe some other reasons that would cause us mm -hmm. question uh, to second guess? And I'm not an expert in that war. I'm just using it as an illustration. Um, and maybe the other uh, the other <laughs> objection would be, well, what what about those that would consider evangelism by the sword a just cause? Um, well, what about holy wars? What about you know, isn't it a just, isn't it just to expand the gospel by 
holy wars? And that's an interesting, interesting question. Uh, I think Jesus' earthly ministry answers that one in that Jesus is the paradigm for how we do, quote unquote, evangelism. And he certainly did not resort to coercive. Mm -hmm. He did not resort to coercive tactics to yep. spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, I think that one is pretty easy to answer, but it might be an objection that someone could pose along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's one more prom predominant view, which is the preventative war view, which I'm not as familiar with, but can you can you take us through what that one is? So it, it piggybacks off just war theory and it goes to the next level and it basically says, well, if we can go to war to pre to stop an aggressor, would it not also make sense for us to go to war in advance to stop a potential aggressor? So if we see a country that seems to be getting more and more aggressive, like North Korea, right? they got nukes. Maybe we should nuke them first, that kind of a mindset. Hmm. I mean, I know they haven't actually attacked us yet, but maybe we could pre prevent them from doing something really evil by attacking them first. Because we're pretty sure if we look at all their posturing and their media posts and whatever else, that they're, they're just really nasty, mm -hmm. nasty people. So that's preventative war theory it observes it, it it agrees with a just war uh interpretation but basically says look war does not always come to you sometimes you need to go to war to uh prevent war so in the preventative war view they would say that the most proactive kind of justice is where you wage war proactively in anticipation of war rather than waiting for a response to it. So we should have attacked Germany earlier, in other words, hmm. um, or in, in the Middle East, we know there's a conflict between Israel and pa Palestine and, and that there's, it's, it's a, that's probably the best example of what you might call a bit of a holy war because there's a, there's a lot of religious, uh, motive behind it. So mm -hmm. the Islamic uh, Palestinians do not like the Jews, and the Jews obviously don't like the Palestinians. And there's a there's a religious dynamic to that, not just a political dynamic, not just land claim dynamics. So we have a, a holy war of sorts happening there today. We know that Israel returned to Palestine in the early 1900s. So there's times when Israel, you know, they get Scud missile after Scud missile after Scud missile after Scud missile coming in. And after a while, they just, they retaliate. But then there's other times when they proactively mm -hmm. move forward and maybe take land or push back in a, a, a small warlike context in order to defend themselves from a potential aggressor. Now, ethically, uh, the argument would be to, to defend yourself against A, against a, a crippling blow, is really no different than B, defending oneself after having received a crippling blow, except that if you wait for option B, you wait to defend yourself after a crippling blow, you might be impotent to defend yourself because you might be dead or it might be too late. So you see the logic there? So the preventative war theorist would say, War is only justified when there's a severe menace coming your way. 
they do favor the maintenance of peace at the highest possible cost, but are, are, are not are not, but are comfortable advocating for attacks on those that may threaten, um, you know, their, their, uh, their peace. A couple examples in World War II, uh, you know, in World War II, the, the kind of a bit of an example of this, the, the USA uh, was attacked by Japan mm-hmm. at Pearl Harbor. Why did, why did Japan attack the USA? The USA wasn't even involved in the war yet, preemptively, because mm-hmm. they wanted to destroy the Pacific fleet. And they were pretty successful at it. Mm-hmm. In their mind, that was that was the right thing to do. It was to prevent the possibility of the the Pacific Fleet joining the Allies and attacking Japan. Now, interestingly, Japan was the aggressor. <laughs> so in that yeah. case, it's the the aggressor using yeah. what they would consider proactive methods to, you know, advance advance their. Uh, their cause. Now, obviously, the major objection to preventative war theory is there's no place in scripture that advocates for punishing or penalizing anyone in advance of an actual sin. Yeah. You know, we we're punished for our sin. Right. Sorry, I, I know it sounds great to say, well, if I knew in advance that this person might kill this person, I'd show up and kill them. Well, that might sound neat and clean and preventative and helpful, but the reality is until the sin's been committed, the sin hasn't been committed. Mm -hmm. Until the war has been waged, the war hasn't been waged. Until the nuke has been fired off, the nuke hasn't been fired off. So there is a a pragmatic um, common sense Mm -hmm. to the preventative war viewpoint but I think there's a major theological problem with it in that it presumes that we can take justice into our hands before the person has committed an injustice. And I just don't think we could justify doing that. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's also true it kind of predicts the future? You don't actually know that the aggressor is going to, right? You don't know. I mean, you're sort of playing the role of God. It's like people ask weird questions. Well, what if what if you knew you know, you're against abortion? Yes. Well, what if you knew in advance that Adolf Hitler— you know, was going to kill millions and millions of people, would you have, you know, would you say it would be okay to have aborted him in the womb? Well, it's a ridiculous question. We don't have, we don't have access to that kind of information. So no. Right. Yeah. And until he committed those sins, he hadn't committed those sins. Mm-hmm. So you can't take matters into your own hands. And And by the way, God doesn't punish us in advance for, sins that we have not, not yet yeah, committed exactly. either. You know, when you stand before the Lord at his uh, great white throne judgment or at the Bema Seat judgment, you're not going to be giving, giving an account for sins you might have committed mm-hmm. if you lived another 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to give an account for the sins you, you did commit. Yeah. So I don't know if you've showed your hand quite fully. Which one would you obviously you're saying no preventative war would you fall into a just war theory would that be more or less yeah i think i think that uh just war theory makes the most sense given all the the factors and realities um i do believe in sphere sovereignty i do believe that uh, god has given a, a certain measure of authority to the various 
authority holders in the world, to the, to the husband over his wife, to parents over their children, to, to elders over their churches, to governments, uh, whether that's a king, queen, parliament, president over their nations, and they do have a responsibility to defend uh, their people mm-hmm. from aggression. And we are Christians, and on a personal level, we are seeking to live out the peace and virtues and values of Christ, but we're not in heaven yet. And in a broken world, uh, it's the right thing to do uh, to to attack and defend, uh, attack back and defend your people, uh, or even your family in the case of personal assault, mm-hmm. from uh, those that would want to take life and do damage. So if... If at any point in time a nation state can stop or restrain evil, we need to do that. And by the way, we need to be politically involved because we live in a world that has lost sight of true justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem in the West, just to bunny trail here a little bit, is that our view of justice is so wonky that we're comfortable killing the innocent, Mm -hmm. notably those in, in the womb. And just giving a little slap on the wrist to those that are perverts and pedophiles and murderers and rapists. And it, it's not right. Um, the whole lex talionis uh, principle is is still valid. And we need to we need to do what we can to stand for justice. You know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is 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 a biblical principle. It, it, in terms of public justice, right. okay, we're yes. not talking about personal retaliation, but in terms of public justice, if we could determine that a war was indeed just to wage, then we are green-lighted as Christians to participate in that, including taking the lives of aggressors. That is not a violation of the prohibition not to murder. Hmm. Again, maybe we can discuss this at another point in time. There's various words used in the Hebrew Bible to describe the taking of life from what we would call manslaughter to unintentional homicide to intentional homicide. And there's a different word uh, used for war, for for just war. Mm-hmm. The, the prohibition against murder is not a prohibition against killing it's a prohibition against murder. And murder is different than killing. If you're on a battlefield and you shoot your weapon at a guy that's shooting back at you, trying to take your territory or kill your family or invade your nation, you are not murdering that person. You are killing that person. And that is not forbidden. In fact, it is justified time and time again uh, throughout God's laws. So yes, I would be a just war theorist. I think there's major problems with the pacifist view. I don't have a problem with someone, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, taking the non non resistance view if their personal conscience dictates that they just they don't have the constitution for it. They don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. uh, being the guy with the gun or the guy in the tank. But there's other ways for them to serve. That's fine too, but obviously everybody can't take that position. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. Uh, and then in terms of the the preventative war view, I have major problems with that because I I don't think that we can um, judge or respond to sin until sin has been been committed, even if we think 
from a human perspective, beyond a reasonable doubt that it's going to be committed, it still hasn't been committed for mm -hmm. that. You don't spank your child because they were thinking about, you, because you think they were thinking about taking a cookie from the cookie jar, right? right? Yes. You discipline the action once the offense has been committed or in the process of being committed right. would be another way to put it. Yeah, and there's certainly no reason why you couldn't put in safeguards so that the offense couldn't take place in the first place. Sanctions sure. against countries and whatnot to kind of prevent the war from happening in the first place, right? But, and you know, it's, I. By the way, this isn't this isn't reason to leave your church, switch churches. It's not reason to form a new denomination. It's it's something that good people can can disagree on. Mm -hmm. It's not a heaven or hell issue, but it's an important ethical consideration for us to to consider, which does kind of bring to bear. Theology of sphere sovereignty, trying to understand the role of the government, trying to understand how certain God accommodates uh, certain sinful reality. He doesn't accommodate it in that he is justifying it. Mm -hmm. But like I said earlier, di permitting divorce actually protects marriage mm -hmm. if it's properly understood. If it's properly understood, again, most divorces I would say aren't legitimate, but a biblical divorce that's legitimate serves to protect marriage and even not permitting an adulterer to remarry also protects marriage, mm -hmm. but permitting the offended party, if there is one, uh, to remarry uh, helps protect the nature of marriage mm -hmm. to to take the life of an aggressor who's been told to stop and won't stop so that he doesn't then take 10 more lives, to take the life of one Nazi soldier mm -hmm. who's about to take the lives of 10 Jews, it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And it is the just and righteous righteous thing to do. Um, can I say one final thing? Yeah, of course. Completely <laughs> off topic. <laughs> totally. This is Thursday. Starting tomorrow, we have our young adult conference yep. at our church. I think we have uh, over 350 young people between the ages of 18 and 29 coming. And I just ask my audience, if you're uh, listening to this podcast in advance, to pray for that event. We really have a passion to help to equip young adults to think Christianly about all of life. And the emphasis of this conference is on just practical wisdom. Mm -hmm. Just practically thinking through the wise principles for relationship, money management, how to respond to suffering, dating, maleness, femaleness. We just really want to equip them. If we're going to retake culture and reshape culture, we really need to do a good job, not just in fighting against the establishment, but training up our children in the ways of the Lord and equipping our young people in particular to think Christianly about all of life. So. It's a little late to register if you haven't registered already, but just a, a call out for prayer. We're really excited about it. Hopefully we can you know, maybe do this uh, next year or, or whatever. Again, if it's a blessing, if there's a need. So just wanted to throw that out as a, a good news um, item for our listeners and also just a, a request for, for prayer. Excellent. Well, thank you. We know Christians have to think through these issues. We obviously want to advocate for peace and try to mitigate against the loss of life, but we do need to take seriously the fact that we live in a fallen world. So hopefully this discussion has stirred your thinking, helped you to go again and look at what scripture has to say and to think Christianly about that. Thank you, Aaron, for taking us through that. A reminder to our listeners that you can hear this podcast both on the pursuitofglory.org website, which is Pastor Aaron's personal blog, as well as the Fight, Laugh, Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, 
and their uh, companion app. So make sure to download those, share that out to get the word out and tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.